to the Ed Morrissey Show. I am honored now to introduce uh, Francis X. Roca, Wall Street Journal reporter at the Vatican, one of the best and most reliable Vaticanistas that there that there is, and uh, no stranger to this show. He's been on several times. Always a pleasure to speak to him directly from Rome. Uh, Frank, welcome back to the show. Ed, thank you very much. Always a pleasure and an honor. Well, it's interesting here, and I think that... Um, you know, first off, you've got a, a great piece up right now at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Russia's war rages putting Ukraine's cultural sites at risk. And I think that this is one of the uh, one of the nuances of war that people forget. And we kind of went through this a little bit with Iraq, uh, where we had some of the antiquities that were looted out of Iraq, sometimes by American troops, and spent years trying to get these things back to Iraq. I mean, war does terrible things to um, to art, to other cultural treasures, and and I think it's important for us to focus on how we're, you know, how we should mitigate this. So I think uh, you know, tell us a little bit about where you're going um, in, in this piece as well. Well, I should say thank you very much, but thank you should say that I was the co the, the co writer on this piece, but the right. principal. Porter was uh, my uh, colleague, Elizabeth, Isabel Coles, who's uh, there in Lviv, and a part of a team of people from our paper who are uh, who are right in the thick of things. So, uh, you know, and, uh, oh, excuse me, sorry, I, there was an air raid siren. I have to get back to, you know, that kind of, <laughs> it's really sobering because I'm yeah. sitting here in Rome, so happy to make phone calls and so forth, but uh, but they're, they're actually there in the, in, the, in the war zone. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the concern is uh, obviously, uh, I think uh, twofold. One is uh, that uh, you know, uh, when buildings burn down, uh, you know, if they're containing uh, art uh, masterpieces, then they, they, those are lost. Or if bombs fall in the wrong place. Uh, but then there's the, also the other consideration, which is that uh, you know, if they survive, uh, will they be looted? Will they be taken? That's happened uh, uh, over and over again. The, the Russians took. Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of objects in the Second World War, and some of them real masterpieces that are sitting in their museums. Um, and they took things from Ukraine even earlier, when Ukraine was absorbed into the Soviet Union, and there were persecution of the church, a lot of religious art. So, um, so that, that's a twofold concern. The question there was the question also: Well, should you move these things out of the country? But I think part of the problem is that they've got other priorities at the moment, like right. trade and people out of the country and also then there's the question is if you are uh, driving trucks to the border uh, of poland then you know well then the trucks get hit so one curator told my colleague uh you know uh, well look maybe better it, it, better to preserve them and uh, what the worst happens and the russians steal them at least we can they, they they exist and we can get them back diplomatically someday rather than have them be destroyed so it's a dilemma well, it's and it's not just the movable art pieces, right? I mean, this is something that I think we as Americans don't experience um, unless we're unless we're unless we travel, and we're not necessarily the best at being world travelers. But when you're in places like Lvov or um, or Kiev or Kharkiv, and certainly in places like Rome, uh, one of my favorite cities in the world, it, the art isn't just what's hanging on the walls. It's not just what's up on a pedestal. I mean, the buildings themselves are art. I mean, when you're in Rome, and you know, you certainly know this because you've been there uh, for a very long time, you're really living in art. You're living in architectural art. You're living in history. And dropping bombs on this, uh, on places like this, 
means that a lot of that is going to be destroyed uh, and it will never come back. You can build a new building in these places, but the art, the architectural history, the um, uh, just the, the lived history is destroyed. And that's one of the that's one of the things that's at risk in, in this war as well. Yeah, that's right. I believe Warsaw. I've never been to Warsaw. Krakow is still very, very well preserved, as you probably know. But Warsaw, I believe, was largely destroyed in the war. And that's just one city. And, and uh, even in Italy, there are a city. I mean, so there's so much of the past. Rome was pretty much spared. Rome was pretty much spared, um, uh, happily. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they, 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 there's this uh, Hague Convention, 1954 Hague Convention, to which both Russia and Ukraine are signatories, uh, that they pledge not to target <laughs> Uh, cultural heritage and 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 they the the there's this so-called blue shield emblem and that they're going around they putting on sort of key buildings but it was pointed out that in the elite for example in the balkan wars sometimes the, those actually made buildings a target and they, they had the opposite effect that you had you had soldiers you know targeting buildings uh, so obviously i mean <laughs> I mean, it may seem to some people that that's a, mi a minor consideration compared to like maternity hospitals getting bombed and so forth. Obviously, that human life is is is, is uh, unique, uh, <laughs> uniquely valuable. But but this is another uh, casualty. Yeah. Yeah, we're not arguing um, about this in in terms of this is a higher priority, but it is a consideration. It's one of the things that we are going to lose. Yeah. Uh, as a yeah. result of this war, it's not as important as the human lives that are being lost, the the infrastructure that's being lost, but it is still important. And I think that's it's good that you and Isabel Coles and and your, and your team of very brave reporters uh, from the Wall Street Journal are are at least giving us a chance to reflect on that. Yeah, and it's the national heritage too, and that's the, I mean the right because that's well, was something that uh, obviously Putin has made very clear he doesn't respect he doesn't believe that ukraine has a distinct uh, national heritage so a lot of this art is very important to that uh, cultural you know it's called it's cultural heritage the, right right so so the fear that this would either get destroyed or taken is is part of that fear that they're going to be erased exactly and that's a and that's the purpose of this war is to is is vladimir putin wants to erase ukrainian nationality and as you just pointed out um and succeeding in this would mean succeeding in one of his major war uh, war aims, and it's important for us to to try to protect against that to the best of our ability and to the best of the West's ability. Um, now, Frank, I want to turn to what's going on between the various churches in Europe, including the Vatican, and uh, in in relation to this war. And I think that this is something that really hasn't been. A, a major focus, I think, because of course we're mostly focused again on what the combatants are doing, the Ukrainians, the inspirational leadership of, of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, Vladimir Putin's insanity, you know, or, or you know, at least um, debates over that. But the churches here um, are trying to play a role, and it's very complicated. I know that the uh, you know, Pope Francis was trying to build bridges with the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, the, uh, the the churches in Europe have um, have had some reactions to us. What is the current status of the Vatican's position here on this war, and what are the you know what are the the players involved, and in, and in, and how are these interests playing out? 
Well, I mean, the Vatican's position has obviously been, as, as you would expect, has been peace, peace, no war. Right. Uh, the, 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 the language has gotten stronger. It's been, by comparison with other Western leaders, Western governments, it's been very restrained. But uh, the, when, when the actual invasion happened, uh, Cardinal uh, Pietro Parolin, who's the Secretary of State, who's so the second after the Pope, basically, uh, talked about the beginning of uh, military operations on Ukrainian territory or something like that, <laughs> which is you know, a very bloodless, uh, really uh, kind of understated way of talking about an invasion, which and, and kind of almost, it really echoed the, the Russian propaganda, actually. Uh, and, the, and, and the Pope confined himself to talking about, um, well, war is bad, and this, this is war is a tragic thing, and but it could have been, and this is something that the Ukrainians have complained about over the, or, or in the past about about the Pope is that it could have been a civil war he was talking about, which you know it could have been, it, it wasn't necessarily clear that there was, I mean, that there was one side that was to blame and the other was simply fighting a, a, a justified defensive war. Uh, and then his his language has gotten strong, and then he did he did it very typically sort of ambiguous and and and, and a, a, a sort of a flashy thing. Well, flashy is not quite the right word, but impressive sort of a thing, which is he went uh, to the Russian embassy, right? Very short, I think, the day after the invasion. Uh, to but they didn't say what he what he what he said because uh, ordinarily the Pope would never go to the embassy. He would call the ambassador if he's concerned about something call him in, you know, because they come to me, summon him. But he went himself uh, and, but they said, but the only thing the Vatican would say was that he went to express his concern about the war. So again, finally on Sunday, he, he said, he talked about a, 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 an unacceptable armed aggression. So uh, now he used strong language too. He talked about barbaric bombing of women and children in maternity hospitals. and. He talked about um, uh, he, he he and he was clearly he was clearly appealing to Russia to stop the the thing right to stop the invasion. So his language is strong, but the closest he got to actually he he, he sort of he, he, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people are not satisfied yet. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's still it's still pretty bloodless language compared to uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury or to the other uh, to uh, Western political leaders. Um, so, I mean, I mean, this is what's interesting about this to me is that, you know, of course, Pope Francis has been working for years, again, to build bridges to the various Orthodox churches, but including the Ru Russian Orthodox Church. He traveled to Havana, Cuba to uh, meet with Patriarch Kittel and, and to um, and to sort of support or at least offer sort of vague terms of support for Kittel's um, patriarchy over the broader Orthodox Church in that region, which would have include, included Ukraine, um, I think as a as an effort, you know, you know, a, a millennia a millennium long effort, right, to to heal the breach between, you know, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the various Orthodox churches. Um, this now has become though a huge blow up um, among the Orthodox churches. Of course, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is uh, now rejecting Kittel's, um uh, leadership. Uh, you've got the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople that has sided with the Ukrainians on this. Um, so it's become a, a a bigger rift than maybe it's been in, in quite a long time. Is, is, is the Vatican still trying to calculate this on the basis of the interest of Christian unity, Orthodox Christian unity, or, or maybe a 
apostolic Christian, uh, Christian unity, or are they turning a corner now on this and saying this is just this might be this might just be a, a situation where uh, Kirill is just too co-opted into the Russian system to be able to negotiate on that basis. Well, I don't, they haven't said anything like that openly, and I right. don't know. I, I don't see any indication that. I mean, I think. Right. So the, the Russian Orthodox Church is the single largest and most powerful church in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, and it's the one that's most resistant <laughs> to to ecumenism and to dealing with Rome for various reasons, historical reasons, and uh, and the Pope has been very obliging and very deferential to uh, really to in his attempt to. And he got that meeting. Uh, he got that meeting in, uh, in in 2016 in Havana that you mentioned with Kirill, which was the first time that a pope had ever met with a Russian Orthodox patriarch. Um, but you know, he 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 he, he uh, disappointed a lot of Catholics uh, in Ukraine, uh, who uh, whose position has historically been very difficult, uh, and uh, because uh, they felt that the statement he signed with Kirill in 2016 both. Kind of played down the Russian aggression in Ukraine, uh, and remember the Vatican never, never, never spoke out against the annexation of Crimea actually either in 2014. But also, it seemed to it language that they thought it kind of diminished the importance of their own Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine, the the, the church that's been loyal to the, to Rome for centuries, um, because the Russians really don't like, really don't like them. I mean, they really don't like their presence. They think it's uh, you know sheep stealing. It's just a so they, 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 the, the, the head of the, I'm getting in the weeds maybe, but the head of the Greek or of the, of the, of the Ukrainian Catholic Church said that the Ukrainian Catholics felt betrayed. And the Pope, I think, didn't, I, I don't think the Pope was happy about that. Uh, and, but um, the, um, I think now you're right, he's in a real dilemma. He's in a real dilemma because the, the, the whole point of all this outreach was ecumenism. But now if the Eastern Orthodox are fighting among themselves, I mean, uh, Kirill won't pray for uh, Bartholomew, who should be is considered the first among equals uh, among Eastern Catholic bishops, right? Because right. He, recognized, he recognized this, this autonomous, uh, technically autocephalous uh, church in Ukraine. Now, there's still now still most of the, of the Ukrainian Orthodox are still associated with Moscow officially. But in the recent weeks, we're hearing some of their clergy speak up and saying that they'd like to maybe join this autonomous Ukrainian church. So uh, you, you're right. I mean, will, will, the, will the popes, if the pope seem, is seen too uh, deferential to Carol's sensibilities, will that alienate the other Eastern Orthodox? Uh, on the other hand, Carol is totally on board with Putin. I mean, it's, it is, he has justified this war uh, both geopolitically and culturally. Uh, he created a kerfuffle, uh, you know, a little while ago when he, when he said, oh, well, look what they're trying to do in Ukraine, uh, you know, the West, uh, they want to have gay pride parades, you know, right. that's, why we're, that's why we're fighting this war. So, which is certainly not Francis's approach to talk to uh, even metaphorical culture wars, not literal, literal cultural wars with bombs, but so it's a real dilemma. So in other words, I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't know what they're going to do, but I, I would be surprised if he comes out and just criticizes Kirill or explicitly names Russia. How about the rest of the, uh, the Vatican hierarchy? I know uh, uh, Perlin, um 
Cardinal Perlin had something to started speaking a little bit more harshly about the invasion. I'm trying to recall exactly what it was that he said. Um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be coming from Pope Francis in order to get the point made. And uh, are you hearing um, uh, more about this? And I'm, I'm just pulling this up right now while we're speaking, Frank, because I, I forgot to pull this up earlier. But um, the um, he says, uh, uh, I mean, he, this was more about Kirill than it was about Russia. And he says, Kirill's words do not favor or promote an agreement. This was after two sermons, right? There was the March 5th sermon uh, in which he justified the war sort of on vaguer terms. Then there was a, I, I believe, another sermon on March the 9th that they got into what you just mentioned, the whole gay pride parade thing and the, the decadence of the West. And um, uh, Cardinal Perelin, um said that uh, Kirill's words do not favor or promote an agreement. Instead, they risk heightening spirits toward escalation and, uh, and not solve the uh, crisis peacefully. And that's, so that's the same. Yeah, that's a good point. He did say that. He did say that. Uh, he did distance himself from that, and presumably he was speaking for the Pope. You're right. So I mean, they're a little bit of a little bit of a um, at least a brushback pitch, I guess. Um, that that the Vatican is sending a signal there, and I think in in this might be. And uh, you're a better judge of this than I am. I mean, other other ecclesial uh, organizations um, in Europe have taken a much have taken a stronger a, a strong stand. I don't want to necessarily say it's a much stronger stand, but a more specific stand about Kittle and calling him out for um, his uh, support for the war. Um, does how important is it for the Vatican to be in alignment with some of these other uh, ecclesial organizations, you know, councils of bishops and that sort of thing throughout the rest of Europe? Well, I don't that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, there are people who have complained uh, increasingly. Uh, I haven't heard church leaders complaining about the Pope openly, but I'm saying is you do see, you know, people in the press and, and even people who are very supportive of Pope Francis, not necessarily, you know, just disgruntled conservatives who are sort of reaching for something. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Wipe at him, but but also just be actually people who are very, very sincere, uh, very uh, celebratory of his, uh, of his pontificate, who are disappointed. Uh, what, how much, how, to what extent that affects their view of him or how it affects his, his influence? I don't know. I, I, um, I, I wish I had a better answer. I think, I think if he, if he, if he, if he, if, he, if, if his language continues to get stronger, uh, I think uh, probably uh, that would be enough. I mean, I don't think that, you know, people are going to like uh, criticize him. Oh, religious leaders are going to criticize him openly for that. Uh, I think they, 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 their, their, their usual way of dealing is very diplomatic with each other. And, and I think that it's understood that the Russian case is very peculiar because this, you know, the, 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 the Kremlin and the patriarchate are so, so closely connected i mean right uh, and um so anyway i i i, I don't know that the pope feel i don't know that if he, if he feels heat to do that from that end well how what do you hmm. so i sort of like a final thought here um it almost sounds to me like pope francis <clears throat> is trying to remain in a position to help broker some sort of 
you know, peace. And it wouldn't be the first time, you know, that the Vatican, I mean, the Vatican has a very long and rich and uh, diplomatic history. They, they have a power that is, that far exceeds their, their physical presence in the world, uh, mostly on the basis of, you know, moral authority and the basis of having 1.2 billion Catholics around the world. Um, and, and so no one should ever underestimate the, uh, the potential uh, for the Vatican to to enter into th into a diplomatic um, mode and try to negotiate between hostile combatants, it seems like that's kind of what Pope Francis has been trying to do all along: is to leave the Vatican open as a forum for this. Um, and I'm not I'm I'm not asking you to say how successful that would be, but do you see any signs that um, that that's getting some resonance and maybe there's some some back channel connections or some rumors of 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 work in that direction at the Vatican because as long as he doesn't pick a side it, it does sort of lend itself to being that sort of forum well yeah maybe I I, I, I don't know uh, I don't know uh, a <laughs> which is probably the most important thing to say but right. B, I don't know that the Russians would think of him as a necessarily totally neutral person, even though as, yeah, as good point. I mean, they, there are Catholics in Ukraine. There aren't really any Catholics in Russia. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the Russians have always seen the Church of Rome as kind of, you know, <laughs> they haven't had a, they've had a kind of a, to put it mildly an adversarial relationship over the over or in history. So so I don't know. But I want a lot of neutrality. There was something I wanted to say. Now I remember about the historical perspective on this since really the beginning of the 20th century, since uh, Benedict XV uh, tried in vain uh, to stop the First World War. Uh, the, the position of the Vatican has very much been of, you know, peace, peace, which it wasn't always the case because the Vatican, the popes were war, war made war in, in right. history. They had armies and so forth, but but that's not true anymore. And 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 through the whole 20th century, the Vatican's position was always you know peace and also kind of a neutrality. And of course, the extreme situation was the Second World War with Pius XII, and we're still we're still arguing about that, right? Right. Uh, you know where oh my God, he really sh you know people say well he really should have taken a side because there was a clearly a bad you know a worse side and and so forth and um so i think that's part of it too we have to put it the widen the perspective beyond francis i think i think the 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 the, the idea is and that and that helps explain i think that is a factor why you know he you say war war evil barbaric bombing and so forth but he doesn't want to say he he reluctant to say okay but it's their fault even though i mean you know if you connect the dots he is saying it's there there's an aggressor and then there's a victim right but I think there's also that there's also this idea that uh you know war is not the solution and therefore uh you don't want to take sides and say okay well i want this guy to win and this guy to lose even though it would obviously be better if one side won than the other anyway i don't know if that helps but i think i think that's also a factor which is beyond the precise particular issues involving russia I think that's great. I mean, again, I mean, this is, you know, the, the Vatican is a, is a really interesting and nuanced place. And, um, and I think it helps when we see, you know, perspectives that are somewhat different and, and, uh, th than our own. And, 
And I and I think that you're right, right? I, I think that this is a, a you know, their, their message for the last century has just been peace, 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 peace. Um, and I think legitimately so. And I, I think it's an interesting comparison in the end to Kittle, who apparently is championing, championing a, a war. Um, and that's the reason why you have this dislocation now between the Russian Orthodox, well, at least the Russian Orthodox leadership of the church and um, and the and the rest of the Christian church in Europe. Um, worth noting, too, is that even some Russian Orthodox clerics, I think it was last count was close to 300, signed a, a letter objecting to Carroll's leadership on this. So that's probably worth watching as well. But um, yeah, although, although that is true, but my understanding is that a large number, if not the majority of those, are actually outside of Russia. I think ah. so. it was organized by a priest in uh, in Madrid, Russian Orthodox Peace in Madrid, and 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 a lot. Of, and and so it was. Just, I'm not. That doesn't take away from what their value, what they're saying. But you can see why it'd be a lot harder for people in Russia to do that. Oh, indeed, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, and in many cases, I, I'm told these Russian Orthodox priests have congregations with lots of Ukrainians. So it's, it's, it's significant, but it's not quite a revolt. It's not like Kirill's clergy is revolting and, and saying, you know, we're, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's, a good, that's a good perspective on that, too. So, I mean, that's something that uh, I, there's not been a lot of media coverage on this angle. So, I mean, uh, no. to the extent that you've got that sort of insight, absolutely. This is, uh, it, it's great to hear this. And, and I'm going to try to keep an eye on this. And of course, if you want to keep an eye on all of these things, uh, the best thing to do is to follow Frank on Twitter, francis.x.roca, I think at francis.x.roca. Is that correct? Uh, there's no dots. It's oh, just, that's right. Francis X Roca, just all yeah. together. Yeah. I'm confusing that, I think, with your... Well, I don't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to put my that in the open. My email address is public. It's on the website. Oh, fact. well, there you go. Yeah, it's francis.roca. That's true. Yeah, it's, in fact, I'm looking at it now. It's in your Twitter bio. So, yeah. Um, I know. I met journalists who's like, oh, I won't give out my cell phone number. I'm like, you're a journalist. You should want everybody to have your cell phone number. But anyway. Yeah, buy a personal one. <laughs> have a professional one, buy a personal one. Um, all right, well, we'll follow them at Francis X Roca, R-O-C-C-A. And of course, if you're not subscribing to the Wall Street Journal, maybe you should do that as well. I subscribe and um, I get a chance to read everything that Frank's writing and you should read everything that Frank's writing. Frank, again, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Great information and um, wish you the best in Rome and we'll hopefully get you back on here lots and lots to talk more about what's going on at the Vatican. Thank you, Ed. All right, folks, stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Coming right back. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Do 6 in 10 Americans really support teaching children below the age of 10 about sexual orientation and gender identity? That's what ABC News and Ipsos want readers to believe from its latest polling, but their methodology exposes this as yet another media narrative stunt. By their own admission, the poll oversamples LGBTQ respondents and its too small number of adults rather than registered voters. It appears that ABC and Ipsos polled specifically where they could expect opposition to be strongest in selected urban areas, as a means to rebuke Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis will sign a bill that prohibits instruction on sexual orientation before the fourth grade, keeping sex education efforts focused instead on basic human biology. DeSantis appears to have a better sense of parental opinion in Florida than ABC would like you to believe. 
we all need to watch carefully as media companies cook up surveys like this one in order to push a narrative rather than measure public opinion. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me as always on Tuesdays, Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com. How are you doing? And and, and he's either Statler or Waldorf. I, I don't yeah. remember which one I am, but uh, he's the other one. Well, you're the tall one. Yeah. Okay. So I don't, uh, yeah. Um, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I, I get a chance to do this with you every week and I don't yeah. have to, uh, I don't have to sling Vladimir Putin's hash uh, <laughs> in these podcasts. I, you know, we're going to get into lots of different topics here, probably media related and Joe Biden related most of all. But before we get going, I got to, I got to play this clip because it just came up. We're recording this on Monday afternoon, just came up on Twitter. Um, now, Vladimir Putin passed a law and I want to talk to you about uh, journalism in the Putin, you know, in the U post-Ukraine era here, because there's all, all there's another interesting story about that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. No, they don't have cloture there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vladimir Putin passed a law that said you can't refer to the war. It's a special military operation and you better you better talk nice about it or else they're arresting people on the street just for doing, you know, Vox Populi um, uh, interviews. Uh, that even sort of kind of dissent, and in some cases not even dissent from the uh, from this. But I got to play this one clip. This is from Channel One News, and the person you're going to see holding up a sign here is actually a producer at Channel One. This is an official state media channel. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, just move over to that, and I'll go ahead and click play. So, yeah, the, the, the sign there um, behind the presenter, Andrew, and, and Andrew didn't get a chance to see this, uh, but the sign behind the presenter said, no war, this is propaganda, you're being lied to. It is probably not anyone's big surprise that her very next appearance was at the local Russian police station where she's about to be prosecuted, apparently, for for that um, for for that editorial comment in the middle of the Channel One news. Uh, Andrew, I mean, this is um, they're playing for keeps over in Russia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we bitch and bitch about uh, the American media, but the fact is uh as bad as they can be at times it's much better than in other places uh and we talk about tyranny here but there's no tyranny like in other places it just it just yep. doesn't even it's not even in the same ballpark uh when i was uh, covering asia back in the 70s i was it was a dictatorship in korea park chung yi the former general and um, they had secret police following me. And well, they weren't so secret if I could see them, but, um, uh, and who I talked to, and then they would go and try to intimidate cab drivers not to take me. Uh, there were guys jailed for um, dissent. 
Uh, and one of the dissenters that I, I would meet with in the evenings and talk to him about life in Korea, uh, he said, uh, look, don't let happen in your country what we do here. Make sure you vote. And I always vote anyway, but uh, it's a good warning. You know, I mean, we, we take it for granted, but we have it very, very good and very, very safe with all the problems and all the anger and dissent, um, we should appreciate what we have. And this is a prime example of what they don't have. Well, yes, and, and you know, the uh, exactly. And, and we should be thankful that we can actually do standups in the street and, and talk to people who dissent. I mean, I don't like violence and I don't like uh, people who break the law to demonstrate, but I actually really like the fact that you can demonstrate legally here without any repercussions. And that's something that, uh, as you can see from some other clips that are floating around uh, today out of Russia, that, I mean, they have cops standing around looking for somebody talking into a camera uh, to arrest. And they're arresting people just as soon as they start talking into cameras. And that is actually a, a pretty good reminder of how fortunately we still have it here in the United States. Now, at the same time, you know, New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, both reported over the last 24 hours that there's been a sort of a, a mass exodus coming out of Russia, right? Because people are afraid that they're going to get conscripted. People are afraid that they're going to close the borders. Uh, and they're trying to get out with whatever they still have left before that disappears as well, Andrew. And uh, that includes a number of journalists that had been working for independent channels. They're setting up in uh, Latvia, I think it is either Lit Lithuania or Latvia. And their mission now is to try to reconstitute these Russian language channels uh, in a way that they can reconnect to their consumers in Russia. And this kind of takes us, everything in this crisis is taking us back to the Cold War. It's a return to the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this was, this was one of the big issues in the Cold War is how do you get non-propaganda to Russians so that they know exactly what's going on. Here you've got, you know, Russians that are trying to do this. And at least as far as I've seen so far, I haven't seen a whole lot of efforts to bolster Voice of America or Radio Free Europe, if the, if the latter even exists. I know Voice of America does. I mean, have yeah, you heard RFE anything about does. this? Yeah, RFE okay. does. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, funny you should ask me, Ed. A number of years ago, <laughs> <laughs> I did my master's thesis on the problems of reporting from communist Poland. Uh, and that in those days, it was behind the Iron Curtain. And for Western correspondents uh, to be there and how they were followed and attempted intimidation and their sources and so on. So this is not a new phenomenon uh, coming out of Moscow, unfortunately. Uh, and... Um, uh, it, it it comes faster. I I saw that uh, there were thousands of Russians uh, going into Turkey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Istanbul specifically, and um, that's a fairly easy trek to make, right? I mean, if you're coming out of southern Russia, you, you, it's fairly easy to get into Turkey. Um, and Turkey, is, of course, is at least partly Western oriented, so Istanbul is a pretty good jumping off location if you want to get all the way over to the west um turkey is also a nato member it is also a nato member um 
And the um, New York Times said there's probably uncounted thousands that are escaping to other parts of Central Asia that we just don't have a good, you know, finger on that pulse. But just get, get back to your master's thesis in Poland. I mean, we've seen some of the, maybe we, we've, we've sort of refreshed our memory here on how difficult it is, even if you get people to listen to these broadcasts, how difficult yeah. it is to get around the propaganda. And I, I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, I'm a big fan of William Scherer's um, oh, books yeah. about, the, about World War II. And there's two books that he did in particular. One, of course, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, but the other is Berlin Diary. And in both of these, but especially in Berlin Diary, he talks about the fact that how much in the bubble he was in, in with Nazi propaganda. And even though he was entirely skeptical of anything the regime had to say for good reason, um, how much of it still informed his thinking. And yeah, yeah. so, I mean, what did you, what, what did you discover while you're doing this uh, master's thesis? Well, um, the, in, the attempted intimidation, they wouldn't give me a visa to go to Poland. Uh, well, yeah. To the communist Poles in those days, but I did talk with um, many correspondents, uh, mainly American, but some British who had worked in Poland and uh, the perils. Now this would have been the mid 60s. So it still was the Cold War. And, you know, this with the fighting going on, this isn't the Cold War anymore. Uh, this is a hot war. Um, and I, my my image of this was formed when I was a teenager and my family had friends in the Netherlands, um, a business associate of my father's, and we went to visit them in Rotterdam, a very nice family, and I'm still friends with their children. Um, and the dad, when we arrived, that I noticed the dad went over and turned off the radio to be polite, but before he turned it off, he changed the channel. Oh, really? Yeah, this is like 1961 or something like that. And um, he pointed out to us that this was a habit ingrained in uh, from the Nazi uh, occupation of the Netherlands. Um, the, the Gestapo would come into the house uh, to look around and look for anyone uh, suspicious and they would go over and put their hand on the radio. This is the old days when radios had tubes in them. And if they felt it was warm, they would turn it on and see what station it was on. And you would get arrested if it was not on a German station. Yeah. So he, to that day, what would have been like 16 years after the end of the war, he still instinctively changed the channel to a German station. Um, and I thought that was, for a teenager, I was very impressed with that. Well, it's impossible if you have been a teenager in 1961 because you're only 38 years old. So That's you know, true. it's a... That's true. Well, <laughs> yeah. well I, you know, time flies. Time does fly. It does fly, especially when we're doing these podcasts. But um, <laughs> I think what's interesting, though, is how much it comes back around again. And we're seeing that right now. And I don't think that yeah. anybody... You know, well, certainly before 2014, but I don't think anybody even really thought in 2022 that you'd be seeing really the Sovietization minus the communism of Russia at this late date. I think that people figured that the oligarchs would have too much sway over Putin, that they wouldn't want to 
have their business interests damaged. And that may still wind up being true. But in the meantime, we're really going back in, oh, yeah. in, in, in Belarus and in Russia to that very same kind of um, abrupt media um, iron curtain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's scary. Uh, what's also scary was this poll that came out, uh, got overlooked uh, for a week or so, but uh, showed that uh, only half of Americans would uh, would be willing to fight for America if we were invaded. Right. The other, the other half would flee. Good grief. What a sad comment on our education system that uh, that we don't teach the patriotism and the national spirit, uh, apparently, sufficiently. I called that the Red Dawn question. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, and yeah. Cam Edwards and I were having this sort of like this lengthy debate over like the last two or three weeks on the um, on, on the VIP gold chat <laughs> about about Red Dawn, uh, because I've always thought it was a ridiculous movie. Um and I, I know that I'm firmly in the minority on that opinion, but I said, you know, the thing is, is that as ridiculous as that was for Americans, Ukraine's really going through a Red Dawn moment right now. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's a legit thing for them. But the difference is, of course, is that <laughs> I, I don't know how you calculate the lines of communication that will allow a large army to invade the United States you know, by surprise, right? <laughs> unless you're yeah. unless you're thinking that it's Mexico and Canada that are doing it, which you know I guess is possible, I think. But um, you know, the Russians and the Cubans don't make a lot of sense. Neither do neither does China, and especially not North Korea, which was the the setup for the remake that was made because you know you can't you can't show China being bad guys if you make a Hollywood movie. Um, so uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Well, you see, I mean, they're just stories. I'm watching this Jack Reacher series. Uh, yeah, I've heard good things about that. Oh, yeah, it's very entertaining. And, you know, one of the reasons I think it's entertaining is because it, there's a, an indomitable good guy who's very, he doesn't talk much, but he's, you can't beat him up. Now, I suppose you could shoot him. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, we're only a few episodes in. But uh, so whenever he comes, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, whenever he comes up against a confrontation, you have the comfort of knowing he's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like Chuck Norris, right? It's a, it's yeah, a, Chuck yeah. Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. uh, Rocky. Uh, Rocky had to go way down before he came back up. That was the appeal to come back. Americans are suckers for comebacks. Comebacks under, and redemption under, stories. Comebacks yeah, and redemption underdog, stories. Underdogs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and that's the reason why I think that, I mean, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I think that we are so um, sympathetic to Ukraine. I mean, oh, I think yeah. that Americans... Despite all of our differences, despite all the, you know, all of the um, sharp divisions that we have, I think Americans across the spectrum recognize a good uh, liberation fight. And yeah. and clearly in Ukraine, that's what's going on here. So, well, yeah. I mean, and the American Revolution, we were going up against the world's largest, best army. Yep. <laughs> With a bunch of ragtag people who hid in the bushes and shot. I mean, that just violated all the rules of war. Uh 
what we won. And guess who learned from that? Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it came back to bite uh, bite our karma or something. Yeah, it's uh, bite us in the butt, I think, is a, a good way yeah. of putting it. All right, let's let's move on to um, your column this week, the VIP uh, column over at redstate.com. You are the regent of Red State, after all. Uh, a dangerous habit. Biden is late for everything except weekends away. Um, you know, I, I noticed that this was true of Barack Obama, too. Um, yeah. And I don't recall it being as true of Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump might be a few minutes late for press conferences and that sort of thing. But also Donald Trump was the kind of guy who, you know, would show up for the, you know, uh, the opening of a can of beer. I mean, this is a guy who really wanted That's to be right. in, and, fr and in front of the microphone. for a long time. Yeah. Uh, remember in the campaign, when the campaign was winding down, the guy was doing three major rally speeches in three different states on one day. And Joe Biden was knocking off by 10 or 11 in the morning. Yep. Uh, now, Bill Clinton was always late. Um, uh, I know I worked for George W. Bush and Laura Bush, and they were never late. Yeah, I was going to say, mean, they were punctual. They were like... Oh, it was a religion with them. And I think it came from Barbara Bush, who taught them a lot of things about political courtesy. Um, for instance, when we would, I would campaign with Laura Bush, and we would be in a small... Like, I remember being in Clear Lake, Iowa, Remember, and that's where the, the right. bopper died. So, uh, <laughs> and we took off from the same airport. But uh, uh, we would have a day of campaigning pe at people's houses and uh, at uh, Rotary Clubs and whatever. And uh, when the plane took off, uh, it was my duty to give uh, Mrs. Bush a list of uh, people that we owed thanks to for that day, for that day. And on the way to the next stop, she would be writing hand notes or uh, thank you notes in her own handwriting and addressing the envelopes. And they would be mailed uh, by night of that day. Uh, personal thank yous. Uh, we were in Council Bluffs one time and uh, Secret Service drove up to the door. It was five minutes early and she said, no, no, I have to drive around the block. If we show up early, they'll be embarrassed because they won't exactly be ready. Uh, you could never be late, but you also couldn't be early. So we drove around a couple of blocks, came back, and according to Mrs. Bush's watch, boom, we were at the door on time, and the people were ready then uh, to meet us. And they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they remarked to me, some of the people later, that uh, Bill Bradley had used that same uh, venue the previous day, and he was over two hours late. It was winter, so a lot of people were waiting in the cold. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not like Barbara Bush, obviously, but uh, <laughs> if you want to ask somebody for something as sacred as their vote and you show up two hours late and go, listen, you know, I'm so important, I'm late, but you have to understand. No, I'm, I'm sorry. It, it doesn't work. I wouldn't have waited two hours if I was a... a uh, a Bill Bradley supporter. So, um, yeah, it's 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 just common courtesy. Yeah, and and it works. Well, I think it's you know it's part of that. It's that part of retail politics that I think a lot of uh, politicians candidates miss, right? Oh and yeah. It's, you know, it's part of this whole 
being able to connect to voters. And I'm just going to go ahead and tie this to the, you know, the big news over the last couple of days is, you know, the DCCC chairperson, uh, Sean Maloney, was <laughs> arguing, was trying to tell his fellow Democrats, you know, we've really lost touch with voters. We're not speaking to them on terms that they want to make that connection. We're, we're, we're lecturing them. We're belittling them. We're talking past them. And talking we're down. Talking, talking down. down. Exactly. Um, and needless to say, that that warning didn't get a, 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 a whole heck of a lot of cheer from the from the Democrats, congressional Democrats on their retreat this weekend. But I, I mean, it really is the truth. They'll, they'll get their butts shot off. You know, one of my favorite tweets, <laughs> it's an evergreen, is the one that comes out that says, I'm determined to work and be less condescending to people. Parentheses. That means talking down to people. <laughs> <laughs> I resolve to treat people as though they're intelligent. That includes you unwashed yeah, out there. <laughs> I'm pretend that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that, there's that, um, you know, that uh, apocryphal quote that's been attributed to Samuel Goldwyn. That's clearly not, I mean, it's clearly apocryphal. So probably joking in the first place, but you know, where he, uh, where he says sincerity is the key. Um, once you've got that, you can fake anything. So, you know, if you yeah, if you can't fake yeah, you can fake Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's also the one who's supposed to have said uh, he had a, a movie that was a bomb and they asked him what happened. And he says, well, if people don't want to come, you can't stop them. Right. <laughs> I love I love little twists like that. I, oh, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, it's great. Out of me. But I mean, this is this is part of the problem with Joe Biden. It's not that he's just showing up late, right? It's oh, no, it's that his message well, he, is yeah. is he's, way he's off. Late. He was he was two hours late, two hours late for a news conference at NATO last summer. Okay, right. He showed up late for that famous infamous meeting with Boris Johnson was chairing, and he started to make a point that they'd already covered, and Boris Johnson bluntly cut him off, which I think is good. But those people who were always per chronically late, they they never learn the lesson. They think they're they're uh, they're too big for that. But Biden is, was late to detect there was a new variant in uh, the Delta variant. Remember last summer? Right. Yep. They were late on that. He was he he made the Afghan exit late. It was set by Trump, negotiated to be in April which is before the peak fighting season starts. Biden postponed it to September 11th for some silly symbolic reason. And then he got so much criticism, he backed it up into August, which is the peak fighting season. And here comes the Taliban storming across the country. Um, he he re rejected the general's advice that you're gonna need two or 3,000 guys to monitor an evacuation. He ordered everybody out. Then they ordered three times as many people back in. They had to. Um, he said he'd stay, but he didn't. Um, he's late on just about everything. Uh, and they're consequential. He's late to send lethal arms to Ukraine. Um, he stopped uh, Poland from sending MiGs to Ukraine. Uh, he's, oh, he's, he was late on the he was late on the sanctions, right? I mean, he was. Yes. He yes. was. He was. He was dragging butt on on the sanctions. I mean, Europe was ahead of him on these things. And 
you know, you'll you'll hear people in the media, and I want to get to another media story, by the way, before we get to the end of the podcast today. But you'll hear people in the media say, "Well, well, it's good because he, it's showing that he's he's." He's gathering a consensus and, and Europe has to lead on this issue. And it's good that Joe Biden's letting them lead. It's like, not really. No. I mean, what's 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 yeah. the point on that? I mean, yeah, well, we yeah. want to get we want to get them contributing, but it really it's American leadership that really should be out front here for no other reason to protect uh, these same allies in Europe. The same ones who came to our rescue with Article 5 when we were attacked and went into Afghanistan to, right. to, uh, to get back. Uh, it's, yeah, he's late. When have sanctions ever worked? They don't. They don't change behavior. They make people suffer, the regular people. But guess what? Kim Jong-un is not doing without champagne because of the sanctions. And Putin isn't doing without anything. Any Russian that still has a bank account in the United States deserves to lose it. I mean, come on. Right, yeah. Let's, let's get serious about this. So uh, all their money is in Cyprus. They moved all their boats to Spain and, and what have you. By the way, Ed, I think I'm going to become an, a Russian oligarch because they have, they have nice boats. Yeah, I've noticed that they got really cool boats. I want to be a yeah. Russian oligarch when I grow up. I, I've got three choices now in front of me. When I, yeah. when I grow up, I either want to be a Russian oligarch a left-handed relief pitcher, or a <laughs> or a place kicker in the NFL. Yeah, those are, those oh, are my. Oh, there's some pressure. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> well, there's well, a lot of pressure, but your but your uniform stays clean. You could play for 25 <laughs> years. Remember in the old when I was a kid, uh, and the Cleveland Browns were champions, the uh, the place kicker with Lou Groza, they went both ways. So Lou Groza yeah. was uh, was a tackle, and they would have to call a timeout. And he'd run off and change his regular cleats and put on his blunt-toed kicking shoe um, to beat the Los Angeles Rams in the championship game <laughs> in the last 30 seconds, their first year in the National Football League. But I won't get into that, Ed. Um, but you digress. <laughs> yeah, I, I digress. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, anyway, it, it's – it's a cosmetic thing that they're late. They're just plain rude. But if they're late and they're in public office, they're arrogant. And it's dangerous. Uh, do you have any confidence? I sure don't, that they're preparing for a Chinese uh, attack on Taiwan. No, no, no confidence they'll whatsoever. Late. They'll be late. They'll be caught with their pants down on that, too. Yep. Uh, and then they'll try to cover it up, change the subject. Um, it, it's... Um, it's disturbing that we have it a is. guy, a guy who doesn't feel the normal strictures of a leader. He's not a leader, um, and he's a reactive president, reacting right. to things all the time. And he thinks, well, look, you know, I had the I had the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Well, but only after you screwed it up royally. Uh, so anyway, um, that's what the column was about, and I thought it was time to point out punctuality has uh, or lack of it has a price it does i want to ask you one real quick question before we get on to the jokes of the week because that's always the fun part of this show but um <laughs> but did you happen to see that abc news poll on the um that is related to the bill in in florida about restricting sex education to basic biology for pre to three um uh, kids in school uh, below third grade and below mm -hmm. um 
so ABC News has this poll. ABC News Ipsos has this poll, right? And it says only 30, you know, six of 10 Americans oppose this bill that is being passed in Florida. And then you go down about halfway through the report. And it says, by the way, this poll oversampled LGBTQ respondents, which we've, which we've, you know, modeled out. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, by the way, 59% of the non-LGBTQ um, respondents um, uh, also, you know, oppose this. It's like, well, first off, how do you get an oversample of LGBTQ, right? Because the only way to do that, that, yeah, Yeah. the only way to do that is to either identify the respondents you want to ask, or uh, probably more likely, they've limited the they limited the um, the pool to places where they could be reasonably sure of a robust LGBTQ response. So you're looking at urban centers, probably cities like San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, New York. Wow, come on, Ed. That wouldn't skew things, would it? Not at all, you know. Um, And also it was a a national poll of 622 adults, (laughs) not registered voters, 622 adults. I mean, this is a a, a dumb poll. It's it's, It's a completely unreliable model. But I mean, this is what, I mean, this is media polling is sometimes designed to, to, to serve a narrative rather than to actually take the temperature. Exactly. Exactly. To fit them. So much uh, is molded to fit a narrative. Um, I remember back in Watergate, the editors at the New York Times said, well, we want to go out and find out what small town America thinks about, uh, about Watergate and Nixon. I said, okay, well, what do you want the story to be about? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you want it that they support him or that they don't like him? And say, oh, well, uh," I said, because if they want him to support him, uh, I'll go to Nebraska. (laughs) If you don't, I'll go to Madison, Wisconsin. You know, I mean, you could, these things. So anyway, I went to Hastings, Nebraska, but that's a long time ago. It's only yesterday, actually. And yeah, speaking of which, true. speaking of which, now it's time to get to the jokes of the week. Um, our late night, uh, our late night contributions to lightening the mood here. That's right, to lightening the nation's mood. Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, these are all replays. These are brought back from previous late night shows. Seth Meyer said that chocolate maker Hershey is reportedly expecting to cut its global workforce by about 15%. That's right. For the first time ever, chocolate is giving up people for Lent. (laughs) 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 I like that one. Um, uh, Another uh, Myers uh, replay is that the late fashion designer, Carl Lagerfeld, reportedly left part of his $125 million estate to his cat said the cat oh he died (laughs) (laughs) i love these things um finally uh uh, another seth myers is a virginia set of identical twin sisters will marry a set of identical twin brothers in a joint wedding this summer in virginia they're all registered at kinko's (laughs) <laughs> well there you go 
copies, copies, copies. There you That's go. right. So here we are on Tuesday, and we're lightening the national mood. Lightening the national mood, as always. Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, the regent of Red State. You can find him at <laughs> A.H. At Malcolm on the Twitterses. Uh, redstate.com clearly and he's usually in the vip uh section so you can check there as well uh andrew thanks again we'll talk to you next week okie doke thanks ed thanks everybody see you then all right folks stay tuned for more from the ed morrissey show podcast Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me today to talk about what's going on in Iran with Russia and Rob Malley, what a, a name that I thought we might have put behind us about a dozen years or so ago. But no, that's not the case. And David Harsani is here to talk to us about that. He wrote a great piece over at National Review, one of my favorite places on the web, by the way, that's uh, apart from, of course, all the town hall stuff. Uh, David, I have to I have to I have to go with the town hall stuff first, but National Review is right up there. That's where the fishnagels come from. So, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> NationalReview.com and um, you're also on Twitter, right? Is it at David Harsani? Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, right. at David Harsani, my full name. Harsani. All right, uh, and David, um, now, Rob Malley is a name that people who have been paying attention for a while would recall, I think, from 2008 and 2009, because this was the guy who was on Barack Obama's um, campaign initially. He was a campaign advisor for Barack Obama until it came out that he was meeting with or he had met with Hamas, which is a you know, designated terror group. And Barack Obama had to sort of dump him from the campaign only to rehire him after he won the election. Uh, but he ran into a lot of resistance in, in, in terms of what he was trying to do back then. And I'm not sure how much he was able to actually affect. Now he's suddenly back in the Biden administration. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I should mention that he was kicked off the uh, Biden uh, the Obama team in 2008, um, but met with Hamas again in 2010 with a bunch of, uh, you know, Mali types, <laughs> Mali types right. uh, you know, who, who believe that Hamas uh, is the key to negotiating peace in, in, in Israel. I was also taken aback because I never knew this until I wrote research this piece that his dad was Simon Mali, who was this, you know, and I don't say this, uh, lightly a communist self-proclaimed communist writer who lived in france who was pro nasser who was an arafat advisor who you know who did all these things now, obviously the son does not have to you know, just because your dad just, just believes terrible things doesn't mean you will but in this case he does and um and it's kind of weird like mally wrote tons of articles not tons but many articles uh, he co-wrote with an arafat advisor and yet he was on you know on the uh, team to deal with Iran, obviously, uh, something Israel does not support. But anyway, now I forget your question, but I think it was, well, you know, what is he up to now? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I know what he's up to because I, I've actually mentioned, too, that Rob Malley's part of this effort it, to, uh, re, to reinflate the JCPOA with Iran. Um, but uh, I'm curious as to why that's flown under the radar. <clears throat> I mean, certainly the Iran deal talks have flown under the radar, but why Rob Malley's involvement in it has kind of flown under the radar. 
frankly, I think there's so much going on that, that, you know, there just can't be this, you know, focus from Republicans, at least on the Iran deal and who's involved in it. Uh, when Obama was uh, pushing for the Iran deal, there was a lot more pushback from Republicans simply because I think there wasn't a million other things going on at the time. Um, and also maybe we, we maybe everyone just knows that this is what Biden was going to do, you know, and in, in some weird way, it's an effort, I think, to save Obama's uh, legacy as well, even though this is a deal is, is probably going to be worse um, if it goes through. Also, on top of that, what I don't understand or why I don't understand there isn't more attention paid to this and why there isn't more anger about this is that we're literally working with the Russians to do it. You know, we're Russians are the intermediary. They are making demands, sanctions, and we're still pushing through even as Russia, you know, destroys Ukraine. So that, too, is, is, is a weird thing that more people aren't upset about that. Well, I, I, I agree, and I, I was just about to say, Rob Malley isn't really even the the most objectionable part of this equation, right? Because you've got Mikhail Ulyanov, who is Vladimir Putin's envoy to the the talks about the renewing the JCPOA, and at the same time, when Putin is invading Ukraine and threatening NATO with uh, nuclear drills, you've got the Biden administration apparently taking uh, direction from Ulyanov to the point where Ulyanov, in speaking with reporters in English, was bragging about how much, uh, how many, how all the big wins that he was getting for Iran with the help of his partners from China uh, at the expense of the United States. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, 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 it's I mean, almost a parody. We saw this with Obama. There is literally nothing that we won't give Iran to get this deal done. I mean, uh, we, we we essentially allowed them to do what they wanted in Syria. We we sent them pallets of of, of cash as a ransom, essentially for 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 people they were kidnapping. We let them demean our military and our soldiers. We let them kill our soldiers, six hundred of them or more, in e Iraq, according to the uh, Obama administration were dead as a direct result of, of what the Iranians were doing. And yet we ignored all that just to sign this deal, which essentially gives them, at least I believe, a glide path to, to, to almost getting nuclear weapons that will make it very easy for them when certain things sunset to do it. Um, and then you will have a country like Russia. Well, the reason we can't do anything about Russia is because it's a nuclear power. I mean, it's pretty clear to anyone. Now imagine Iran is a nuclear power in the Middle East. And this is what I think, John Kerry, I mean, this is, just something I feel there's no like hard evidence about this, but I feel there are a lot of people in the Obama administration and now the Biden administration that want a counterweight to Israel in the Middle East, a nuclear one. And that's why they're perfectly happy with Iran heading in this direction. Well, David, I mean, I think it's even beyond that, too. I think that they're actually trying to counter the I think the wise policy of Donald Trump. And I'm not the biggest fan of Donald Trump, but the Abraham Accords was a, a smashing success. For the United States, he 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 got the Sunni states to start normalizing relationship relations with Israel on the basis that Iran was that they needed a, a united counterweight in the region against Iranian um, expansion. And, you know, and Iran's been pursuing an encirclement uh, campaign against you know the, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia for several years. The Houthis in in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Assad in Syria. I mean, all of these are a 
a larger strategy, which, and again, I, I have my doubts that this administration could recognize a strategy if it bit them in the ass, so to speak. <laughs> Sorry for, for being blunt. But I mean, it's clear that Iran has this encirclement strategy around the, the major Sunni powers. And Biden seems to be jumping on the side of the Sunnis, or excuse me, of, 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 the, of the Iranians against the Sunnis. And that came up this week. I mean, the, the, the consequences of that came up this week because Biden went to Saudi Arabia and UAE and asked to, you know, to, to start talking about increased oil production. They basically told him to pound sand. They're not going to talk to him. I mean, they didn't answer the call of the president of the United States, and yet they spoke to Putin the week before. That's incredible. People from Saudi Arabia is an ally of ours, um, and they're not answering the president's call. And it's because of what he's doing with Iran, because he's taking the Houthis and others off terror lists, because he's essentially going to give Iran what it wants. He's going to turn, I mean, in, in an inadvertent way, I mean, Obama pu pushed together uh, Israel and the Sunni, you know, in the Gulf states. But he's also inadvertently Biden is going to going to push Saudi Arabia to get nuclear weapons itself. We're going to have a nuclearized Middle East. And that's not you know, who knows what, where that leads. Right. Um, so that is also dangerous. And it's incredible that we can't rely on the Saudis to give us more oil uh, when we need it. I mean, an economic uh, we might be headed towards a recession. Obviously, it's going to be huge, inf you know, in inflationary pressures. So. Yeah, it's a disaster of foreign policy. I mean, everyone keeps saying, oh, but, you know, Biden rallied all the allies together. Well, not the oil producing allies we actually need to help us. So um, they don't count the Gulf state as Arab, uh, as allies. And they don't, frankly, even count Israel as an ally very much anymore in the Democratic Party, I don't think. I, well, I think you're right. And I think that this is a, a great example or a great demonstration of the value that they place on uh, Israel's uh Alliance, And for that matter, Saudi Arabia's alliance. I mean, Joe Biden went into office talking about how he was going to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah state. And <clears throat> I mean, I you know, based on the Khashoggi murder, which is certainly, you know, certainly despicable and is is a stain on uh, the Saudis uh, to this day. And they're still not accounting for it. So, I mean, it's it's it that criticism is not illegitimate. But if you're going to make the Saudis a pariah state, as Joe Biden did, then you have to look at strategically, what does that mean? How do you compensate for the strategic, uh, for the loss of a, that uh, that ally in the region? And, and not just in, in terms of the regional politics there, but in terms of your domestic politics, in terms of energy production. And, you know, there was all this you know, Biden's apologists were out there saying, this is awful. We should cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. We should, you know, we should, you know, throw out their ambassador, all sorts of different things. And I, I mean, my answer to that was, what did they expect to have happen? Um, yeah, it's not great to deal with the Saudis, but unless you're willing to produce all of our own oil <laughs> and, and especially have it remain scalable in, in terms of in times of emergency, you you're going to need to deal with people who can produce. I, I just again, the strategic. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're, on one on one hand, you're inhibiting production, right? I mean, from the from day one, that's what Biden did. I mean, they keep pretending, oh, there's nothing that can happen in the next few months. All right, fine. I mean, how about the next price shock or whatever? I mean, he has no interest in doing that. He's obviously worked against it. But more than that. Um, it doesn't make sense. The Khashoggi murder, murder, unjustified and terrible. 
But the murder of 600 Americans doesn't seem to bother anyone. And the Iran deal at the same time, we're going to Venezuela to try to get oil from them, or frankly, allowing Russia, lifting Trump era sanctions on Russian oil, on Russian sending oil to, to, to Europe. So this idea that we're fighting for democracy and then going to Iran and empowering Iran and empowering Venezuela, potentially, it doesn't really make sense. And it uh, shows what hypocrites they are. I mean, they favor Iran over Saudi Arabia because of Khashoggi and other things that bother people within the Beltway. And um, and that's fine. I don't, you know, it's a, it's a petro-theocracy, you know, that, that right. I wish wasn't the way it was. But the world is the way it is. And I can't, we can't just change it because uh, we tweet, you know, we hashtag about it. And uh, if, if you're not going to um, make sure that your relationship with the Gulf states is strong, then this is what's going to happen. It's OPEC plus now. Russia has a big say in what happens with OPEC. We have almost no say. So, yeah, I mean, listen, people talk about energy independence. I don't think when you have a, you know, a fungible commodity, it's never going to be completely that way. But you can do a lot of things to alleviate uh, their power over us. And then and literally every climate bill is about making gas in, and oil and energy in, in general more expensive here. So why are we pretending that that's not what they want to do? That's what Democrats want to do. I mean, it's just a fact. Right. And, and you, in fact, you wrote about this in a separate piece this week. Uh, let them drive Teslas, because this was, you know, the the original response to the high gasoline prices prior to the invasion of Ukraine, at which point it became Putin's spike, right? All of a sudden, the messaging was, oh, this is Putin's spike. It's Putin's inflation. But prior to that, it was like, well, you know, we know gas prices are going up. But hey, if you drove a Tesla, you wouldn't care. As though the energy that powers Teslas <laughs> is completely disconnected from the price of fossil fuel. It's absurd. Uh, and, and again, it's sort of this dishonest presentation of energy policy that that is you can extend that to economic policy in general you know transitory inflation inflation is good for you was rick santelli rick santelli had a rant this morning about this um uh, about all the different excuses and now it's now putin's the latest excuse uh let them drive teslas tell us a little bit about the electric vehicle issue here uh, oh. that you wrote about so well I have nothing against technology. If, if electric cars worked, I'd be fine with it. I probably actually would prefer a gas, you know, gas powered car, but whatever, you know, it, I don't care that people have them, but the idea, I think they're, I forget what these numbers are. So if I get them a little bit off, it is what it is, but I think it's like 1.2% of our fleet is electric cars today. This, I, I want, you know, this after sort of throwing in billions of dollars of subsidies uh, helping these companies get off the ground, all these things. It's 1.2. And the cars are, super, are basically, for the most part, unaffordable for a normal family somewhere in the Midwest who has four kids or three kids or anything like that. I mean, so it's going to cost you like 600 bucks a month. Um, and why get rid of the car you have? But it's just so immature and stupid. I can't even believe we have to talk about it. I mean, you have a few of 280 million cars out there. What are you going to do? How quickly can you replace that fleet? How quickly can you replace the entire infrastructure of how we uh, get, you know, how we power our vehicles? I mean, this, this could take decades to do, even if we wanted to do it. I'm pro gas. I think it's the best, most portable, most efficient and cheapest energy we have. So I don't even know why we have these conversations. Um, but I just quickly want to say, I mean, this has nothing to do with market forces, right? No one's like, there's not a huge clamoring for electric cars. This has to do with the government and technocrats within it telling us what we're going to drive. Um, 
So they, you know, the, 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 as I wrote in the piece, the only difference between these people say, go drive a Tesla and Marie Antoinette is that she actually never said, let them have cake, eat right. cake you know, they, they are. And uh, I just, I think it's so tone deaf, right? I mean, I am not some political strategist, but I just can't imagine someone in Ohio hearing that and saying, yeah, you know what, if we did, if we had a Tesla for 70K, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about gas prices today. It was just, a, and, and as you said, where do they think that energy comes from? Nearly 80% of our, of our power is generated through fossil fuels or nuclear, none of which they want anymore. You know, it's just, right. it's just so um, immature and ridiculous. And I, I just, I don't really get it as a political strategy. Well, David, I, I, I kind of figure it's coming from this sort of academic bubble that James Carville has warned Democrats that they are spending far too much time in. These are the types of arguments that that sound good in the in the faculty lounge. And I use faculty lounge specifically because that was actually Carville's um, Carville's term for it. Uh, but it doesn't work in the real world because in the real world, people understand that you can't have a car that can only go 70 miles on a charge and then needs to charge overnight in order to fully charge up unless you buy a, a super, you know, a, a supercharging uh, station that will cost you several thousand dollars. Um, it's not practical. Uh, I, I actually have no problem about with electric cars either. I wouldn't even mind driving one if I lived in an urban environment where... You didn't have to travel too far, and you could uh, you, you could leave the thing on the charger overnight, and not have to worry too much about range. But if you're not living, but in someone a pointed city, out to me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but someone pointed out to me most people in urban areas want these, right? Right. But think about Manhattan. Where are you going to charge all these cars in a city with old buildings that don't have chargers anywhere? Like right. you know, it's, it's like impossible to even charge them. It works in suburbs. It doesn't work in rural areas. It doesn't work in urban areas yet. Maybe one day it will, whatever. I mean, but it's not a, 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 a legitimate uh, answer to, to the, the problems we're dealing with. It's just preposterous. No, I agree. I agree. And, and But I mean, if you're going to have that type of infrastructure, the first place it's actually going to appear is in urban areas because of the uh, of the density and because of the shorter uh, travel that, that typically occurs in those cities. Maybe Los Angeles being the exception just because it's so large yeah. geographically but um but but what, it, are, what it, are they going to do when they're stuck in traffic for three hours i mean these right. cars are going to die in traffic jams anyway i, I just don't know i, I or chicago <laughs> for that matter yeah you know i grew up in i grew up in los angeles so i i hear you in los angeles i've tried to travel through chicago and i would say chicago's got the same problem yeah good luck uh, good luck in an electric car going across uh, chicago but i mean, I mean again this is it's, it's sort of this un it's it's this unreal disconnected um viewpoint very much elitist i mean this is sort of almost pro, you know archetypally elitist thinking that that you're writing about and let them drive teslas absolutely it's 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 but it is weird that Biden, who sort of fashions himself as this champion of, of the sort of working class, I mean, doesn't get that this is this message won't resonate anywhere. And I maybe, you know, that's just I assume it won't resonate anywhere. And maybe he's just maybe he's just out too old to like understand that anymore or whatever. But it just it does not comport with his usual shtick, you know, or his usual uh uh, rhetoric and uh, you know but they've like leaned into it i've seen like three people in the administration basically say if you had an electric car you wouldn't have to worry about gas 
it's just insanity. And I think most people understand that. And I, that, and it's one of the reasons I think most people, when gas goes to six, $7 a, a gallon this summer, summer's always when gas gets higher, they're not going to blame Putin. I just, I think in the end, they're going to blame, they're going to want to blame someone and the closest person to blame is going to be the president. Right. I agree. I agree. And again, this is this disconnect between what, um, you know, what Democrats assume uh, is important, their, their agenda and the actual daily lived experience of Americans, which when it comes to the elections matters a lot more. And, you know, Republicans made this mistake in, in 2018, right? They, uh, mostly driven by Trump, they ran on an immigration platform which really didn't relate to what their concerns were in that election. Healthcare was more of it because Republicans had sort of botched the, not sort of, they had botched the Obamacare repeal and they didn't have a plan and it made everybody insecure about where their healthcare uh, situation was. And Democrats had a very effective message on healthcare in, in that midterm and did really well. I, I think you're going to see that same thing here. What people are experiencing on a daily basis is inflation, wage erosion, crime and um and and that's those sorts of daily things and democrats are still going to be talking about electric cars and you know build back better uh and that's the that's what carvel's warning them about that's what that's the trap they're walking themselves into it's like climate change is a concern of people who are doing relatively well and don't have to worry about inflation, energy right. prices, things like that. And inflation is the sort of thing that's embedded in literally everything people do. And when inflation happens, they even see it where it isn't because they're just nervous about it and they, and they plan for it and all of those things. And it just has a domino effect, I think. And, and it's just terrible, uh, a terrible political price will be paid for it. Now, I, I'm not a person who believes that you know Biden can just uh, sign a bill and stop inflation, or that he's at fault for everything that's going on. But the the I think compounding his problems are lying about it, saying Build Back Better costs zero after passing a two trillion dollar bill. I mean, people aren't idiots. They know that pumping money into the economy causes more inflation, and uh, all these sort of economic lies. And now with the the Tesla thing and on and on, I think that that disconnect actually goes back to the start of his administration. And now there'll be a price to pay because literally nothing. I mean, what is going well? If I ask someone what's going well in America right now, what would they tell me? I don't think they'd have a lot to say. Right. Nope. And a lot of that is just economic and uh, you know tied to economic problems. So, I mean, you can tell them, oh, the, all these jobs came back. Yeah. But they, you know, they were crushed by state mandates and lockdowns that crush these jobs they should easily come back you have managed that bounce back terribly as far as you know and republicans as well probably will take some blame for that but you know the man in charge is usually takes the most it's the, the quarterback the, the quarterback takes the loss right the quarterback takes the loss yeah. all right david harsani thank you so much for being with us today just remind everybody where they can find you at once again um, most of my stuff's at National Review, occasionally at the New York Post, and I'm on Twitter at uh, David Harsani. At David Harsani and uh, National Review, The Post, uh, Nash, uh, New York Post, be sure to check that out. David, again, thanks for being with us. Thanks at any time. Thanks for having me. All right, stay tuned, folks. There's more coming up from The Ed Morrissey Show.